Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This week, I am joined by Flora Beverly. Flora is an endurance runner, a YouTuber, and she just won her first ever 125k ultra marathon. I've known Flora for a long time, so I was really excited to have this conversation with her while she's recovering from her incredible race. And I know if you're a runner, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, then I know you're going to love this conversation. We talk about the importance of doing hard things. We talk about being competitive with yourself and with others. And we talk about both the physical and mental challenges of endurance training. We also talk about nutrition and about a plant-based diet. And I just wanted to note that neither myself or Flora are qualified nutritionists. This is not us giving out advice about plant-based eating or about nutrition for endurance training. So if you're going to make any changes to your diet, then please do do your own research, speak to a professional, get advice, especially if you are endurance training. Okay, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome to the Power Hour podcast. Flora, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's, I'll be honest with you, this week is when the weather, the you know, the mornings, it's dark, it's cold. Obviously, the clock's changed, it's freezing. And, you know, just like everybody else, it is hard when you've got to lace up and get outside in the freezing cold. So I'm really hoping that this conversation today is going to motivate us all to continue to you know, get out there, any runners listening. And I've just been, yeah, I think even for someone who motivates others it's always great to get that motivational boost so no pressure Mm. (laughs) and I think a great place to start actually for anyone listening you know we actually met a few years ago through our mutual love of running and at the time at the time I think you were training for your first ever marathon which was the Tokyo Marathon and we met up for a run we met up for a run in Hyde Park and it was just like now it was cold it was windy it was raining it was a typical London running weather Uh, but since then you've continued to run you've taken on so many different races and endurance challenges and most recently completing and winning the Beyond the Ultimate Highland Ultra Marathon which is a three-day long 125k race insane (laughs) so before we dive into all of that I guess, you know, I know you, I know you're a high achiever. You strike me as the kind of person who's always been incredibly hardworking and focused and self-motivated and mentioned already that looking forward to getting some of that motivation today. So before we go into all of it, could you give us all a bit of context into, you know, your journey so far and your background? Yeah, of course. So um, I grew up kind of playing sports although really we did things like gymnastics and ballet and tap dancing character dancing all the sort of non-mainstream sports and I have three sisters um so we all did it together we all did exactly the same stuff and I I guess you can say we got quite competitive over it um but you know I I started sports really early but then I, I kind of fell out of love with it quite quickly as soon as I started doing team sports um I think I 
I recently found out that I'm definitely not a team sports sort of person. And so I quickly thought that I was one of those people who was actually just really bad at sports. I was doing things like, you know, hockey at school or whatever, and, and really struggling, not being able to um, achieve the sorts of things that I thought I could achieve. Like, for example, back when I was doing gymnastics and I fell out of love with sports. Um, and it wasn't until more recently that I started um, playing sports. that I realized, you know, you might not do this at school, but it doesn't mean that you're bad at all sports. You just haven't found your sport yet. Um, and so I started playing squash when I was around 15 years old um, and started competing in that um, in national schools championships. Um, and then I took up running once I left school because, uh, you know, with squash, you've got to have a court, you've got to have a person to play with, you've got to have lots of equipment. Whereas with running, essentially, you just lace up your shoes and you go. Um, and that was something that was a lot more manageable for me after I left school. Um, and I, I definitely wasn't immediately enamored with it um it took me a long long time to actually kind of fall in love with running um but that's pretty much where it started Mm. and you mentioned the word competitive a few times so you know being one of four siblings where are you in your siblings are you older younger I am the second in line and we're all really close in age as well so my older sister's two years older my younger sister's a year and a half younger and the one below that is three years younger than her so yeah we're pretty close in age Yeah, because it's really interesting, of course, you know, how our environment shapes and dictates different things, whether that's, you know, nature, nurture, I think definitely, it definitely plays a part, right? You know, whether we have siblings, and I think you mentioned, as I said, the word competitive a few times. And I think it's an interesting point that I want to kind of go into, because I think that, I think that being competitive needs to kind of be rebranded and get some PR because I think people think that being competitive is a bad thing we Mm. often use that as an insult when we say to people oh you're too competitive or oh she's so competitive as if it's a bad thing when in fact I think that competition you know it's innate in all of us we want to succeed we want to kind of see how we compare against others maybe that's whether it's peers whether it's rivalry I think competition is innate within all of us and I don't think it deserves to be kind of so demonized I think it can actually you know really drive people to achieve and to succeed so do you think that being competitive or having that competitive element and drive within you was that was that celebrated were you were you rewarded for that or were you kind of did you try and hide that competitiveness yeah definitely I mean when I was younger it was sort of celebrated I think quite a lot um because it it led us to achieve more but it, it was a bit later on that I I knew that I was competitive, although I didn't really have much reason to be because I wasn't very good at any of the things that I was competitive in. Um, But then I realized that people were looking down on the fact that I was super competitive. And it wasn't it isn't, you know, it's more recently I've started to realize that actually you can be competitive with yourself as well as with other people. So when I do my races, you know, it's very rare, (laughs) despite your intro, it's very rare that I come first in anything. It's very rare that I even place. So it's nice um, to be able to be competitive with where I was yesterday or where I was last year. And that sort of drives me to do so much more um, than I ever thought I'd be able to achieve. So I I think it's a really good thing. And I think, although not everyone is super competitive it is possible to be competitive with yourself and not necessarily with other people and I think that can only really be a good thing Mm, no I agree and let's talk about endurance training in general because I mentioned of course 125k ultra you know it doesn't get much more endurance than that but when it comes to endurance training there's both the physical challenge and of course the mental challenge so for you which one do you personally find more challenging 
Oh, definitely mental. I mean, endurance is far more of a mental battle than physical for me. I'm quite good at enduring uh, discomfort and um, I really enjoy pushing my body. So physically, it's kind of enjoyable. Um, but of course, our bodies want to seek shelter. They want to be comfortable and save as much, uh, as many calories as possible. So biologically, running endurance events is kind of goes against everything that we want to do as human beings which is essentially just cuddle up inside and be warm um so the mental aspect i think is the biggest part of it um but there's definitely a certain joy in kind of pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone and and going beyond what your body necessarily wants to do achieving that and kind of thinking oh well I didn't think I could do that but actually I went and did it and now it's done and that's pretty cool you can just mm. tick that off the list mm, yeah for sure and again this is idea I think when you're talking I'm thinking about is it you versus you like you said with competition when it comes to the mental game of thinking I didn't think I could do this but actually I can I can do one more mile I can I can keep going for another half an hour or an hour or whatever it is needed or do you think there's also an element of the external the external world and I guess kind of perception and other people mm. thinking that because I think growing up you know so a lot of us grew up with a chip on our shoulder that kind of like I'll show you mm. and that again can be really really powerful in sport so do you think there's an internal or an external more for you um there's definitely both if I'm perfectly honest there's definitely both um but I'm trying to get rid of the external one because it's definitely driven by ego and I don't think that's necessarily helpful um mm -hmm. and I know for example, you know, we're supposed to do 80% of our training at a really slow pace, you know, considerably slower than your sort of 5k pace. Um, and it feels quite painful sometimes to really drop back the pace when you know that you can go faster and you have the energy to go faster and you just want to be able to do that. So doing your runs much slower requires you to check your ego and actually just say, you know what, this is going to be beneficial for my training in the long run. And when you upload things to Strava, for example, it can be difficult when you know that lots of people are looking at your runs to just say, you know what, this is actually supposed to be a slow run, so I'm going to do it slowly. And I think that's actually harder than doing all of your runs at, you know, a comfortable, fast pace because you think that that looks good on, on the internet. So that's definitely trying to get rid of the external validation. The rest of it is definitely internal. Um, I can push myself quite hard and um, there's definitely something to be said for that, whilst obviously taking into account the fact that rest is so important um, and that you've got to take things easy sometimes. Oh my gosh, Flora, the ego chat, you are speaking my language. And I just think it takes, I honestly think it takes runners years to get over it. And I actually yeah. think the most experienced and incredible runners that I know and that I follow online or on Strava, I see their runs, as you said, sometimes it's nine minute miles. Sometimes it's seven minute miles. Sometimes it's because they know how to train. They actually yeah. know that when they're training for an ultra or they're training for a marathon or whatever they're doing, they're out there doing what they need to do instead of as you said glancing down and thinking oh gosh my splits look a bit slow and worrying about this kind of for anyone who doesn't use Strava or, or like not in the running culture they're probably like oh who cares but it's so true and, and maybe if you, even if you're not a runner our ego shows up all the time and even you know I have a friend of mine she was doing her yoga teacher training and that was the she said that was the biggest lesson she learned out of all of it was the ego stop mm. trying to you know mm -hmm. make the pose look perfect or hold it for a little bit longer or you know like it, it's all about the perception of how it looks to the other people when actually the 
whole practice is supposed to be about yourself. So, I mean, that ego thing, the, the quicker you can learn that, the better. And again, anecdotally, yeah. as a runner, when I was at the Berlin Marathon, I actually met Elliot Kipchoge and his coach after the race, just in the lift of my hotel, Goodness. which is insane. <laughs> it's insane, right? And Elliot Kipchoge, for anyone who doesn't know, is like, you know, the marathon world champion. Uh, world record holder sorry and he apparently does a lot of his training at nine minute miles he will go and do 20 mile runs at nine minute miles he's not even out of breath he doesn't break a sweat so if Elliot Kipchoge can do nine minute miles we can all slow it down (laughs) a hundred percent and that's actually something that I've learned within um within ultra marathoning because you know, most of my training is super slow. And and actually, when I first started running, um, I came from a track sort of background. And when I first started doing road runs, you know, out and about, I couldn't get to the end of my road. And, and it took me so long to realize, Flora, if you just slow down, you're going to be able to go so much further. And I suddenly like it was it was really something that that clicked in my brain and thought, oh Christ, I've been trying to do 5k at 200 meter pace. Like it's no wonder I can't get beyond the end of my road. (laughs) You're such an idiot. And then you slow down, you realize you can do 5k, you can do 10k and and you push it and you push it and push it. And eventually you can do 125. It's amazing. Wow. Well, you can. Um, And just whilst we're on that of endurance, you know, what else has endurance running taught you? Because you mentioned that it's more of a mental challenge for you. And I think personally, you know, running is quite a solid, you know, for me, it's quite a solo endeavor. And Mm. there's a lot of time spent in solitude because not many people want to run with me at five in the morning in the dark. (laughs) Uh, And especially I'm sure if you're doing those longer training runs, you must spend a lot of time running by yourself. So have you Mm. learned anything else from that time? Yeah, definitely. I'd say the biggest one for me is um, to never quit, but also to listen to my body. Um, I think there's a really great saying that is learn how to rest, not to quit. And I think it's perfect for endurance running as well as really many things in life. It's kind of quite applicable to kind of everything, I think. Um, And you can't really get through your ultra training on motivation alone. So you have to push really hard through your training but then it's also really possible to overdo it um, if you're sticking to something really rigidly because obviously it is going to be uncomfortable so I think some people struggle to find the line between pushing yourself to an uncomfortable level that's doing you good and then pushing it beyond that that's actually harming you so you've got to really listen to your body and know when to take a break even if you fear losing fitness um, or you know taking a step backwards in your training because I think it's a lot better to take a step backwards than to be forced back to square one through injury or burnout, Mm. um, which, you know, used to happen to me all the time because I thought the only way I'm going to get better is by sticking to this program a hundred percent. And then of course I would get injured because I wouldn't stop when I had like a minor niggle or felt completely exhausted. I'd just continue going and then it would get worse and worse and worse. And then I'd have to stop for six weeks or something. And then I'd feel like I was back to square one. So now I mean, it's something that I really struggled with in the past and actually I'm still learning now, but I'm, I'm not really particularly impressed by people who push through injuries and, and kind of overtraining um, to stick rigidly to a training program. I think it requires a lot more mental strength to know when to stop and to listen to your body and, and to slow down a little bit um, just for a week or two to then be able to get back to it with full strength, um, both mentally and physically. Yes. And I guess it's that confidence, isn't it? You know, maybe it comes over time, maybe it comes with age. Again, the ego of going actually understanding when it is, as you said, discomfort, because, you know, taking it a little wider than running. Actually, I delivered a keynote a few weeks ago to a tech company and somebody who came up to me at the end, one of their questions 
he was talking about burnout and you mentioned burnout and he was saying that for him, it's this constant fine line between knowing that he can do more, knowing that he can push mm-hmm. more. And he's talking about his work. So, you know, I can work all the hours. I can do the thing I can. And he was like, it's that fine line between going, well, yeah, maybe I do want to have a, a, a lay in or maybe I want to take some time, but maybe I'm just lazy, actually. And, you know, loads yeah. of people are lazy. You need to, you know, you need to just get up and just keep going. And, you know, maybe you're not burnt out. Maybe you're just, you're lazy. <laughs> you know, keep going, keep going. And it's this constant battle between going, listen to your body. Self-care is important. We need to rest and recover in order to improve our performance whether that's as a runner whether that's as a businessman whether that's a relationship to to be able to perform at your best requires recovery and rest but it's Mm -hmm. really difficult for people that everyone finds this I think especially high achieving people I think a type people find it so hard to actually accept am I resting do I need rest or am I just giving giving in and succumbing to the (laughs) laziness of yeah yeah am I being a human being you know because everybody wants to as you said avoid discomfort and sit in that comfortable place it's really hard to distinguish the two so how do you do you think it's just confidence over time that you've learned to now listen yeah I think so and you also learn you know when you can push and when you have to rest um again I'm still learning it I definitely was redlining on training um prior to the ultra and I actually ended up getting COVID (laughs) um which really wasn't good because my immune system was completely shot like completely destroyed um and I knew that it was and I just didn't I couldn't bring myself to stop it wasn't just the training it was the training on top of life on top of work on top of social stuff um and I think it requires um a lot of uh self-awareness and um understanding of what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked in the past you kind of got to think retrospectively okay actually you know what that time I pushed it a little bit too too hard so next time I'm going to stop just before that point give myself a bit of a break and then get back to it. So I think, yes, it it takes time. And actually, you know, I'm still not getting it right all the time, Um, but it's something that I'm working really hard on and um, I'm getting right more than I used to and more than not now. Mm, Great. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, I think when we look at people sometimes that do incredible things, we think, well, actually, that's just what it takes. You know, like you just have to Mm. show up, always push hard. And you know what? Those people, those outliers, those high achieving people, they just push through even when they don't want to, even when they're broken. You know, we listen to David Goggins, who I love, who I love. And (laughs) and he'll just say, you know what? If if your foot's broken, just tape it up and keep going. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm such a wimp. But there's the reality as well of, yeah, finding that. So I'd love to talk a little bit about about food and about nutrition, because I know that you're plant-based and you care a lot about sustainability. You share a lot of this online. And I know there's been a huge shift actually in the last, I'd say in the last decade in the world of sport and fitness, when it comes to understanding education about food and nutrition. So firstly, I guess on a personal level, why do you personally choose a plant-based diet? You know, a few years ago, I was, for anyone listening, who's been listening to this show for a long time, they might remember back in the day when I was plant-based and I think some, one of the guests, Venetia, she called me a secret vegan because she said, that, um, <laughs> you know, nobody knew that I was plant-based. But anyway, I'm not fully plant-based anymore, but I did that for two years because I wanted to see if it would have, you know, an effect on my performance, on my training, on my recovery recovery on my running whereas other people I know who are hugely passionate about whether it was you know animal cruelty and not the fact we shouldn't eat animals or whether it was sustainability and how the impact on the planet of eating meat whereas they weren't so bothered about you know their 5k time so I know it's very different for everybody but for you why do you choose a plant-based diet well there are there are so many reasons for me um 
now but actually when I first started I was pescatarian I've been pescatarian since the age of four um, which means I eat fish but no meat Um, and then about five years ago um, when I was studying marine biology as part of my biology degree we learned a lot about um, the sustainability of our large-scale fishing habits um, and how difficult it is to choose sustainable and sustainably caught fish unless you're you know out there catching it yourself on you know a line um and i just basically thought i can eat fish sustainably but it's going to take so much hard work and to be honest i'm a little bit lazy and i actually couldn't really be bothered to figure out you know where is my fish coming from how is it being caught what time of year is it being caught are they spawning at that time of year because you don't really want to be eating fish while they're while they're spawning because obviously impacts the next generation of that type of fish where are they being caught where where are they being filleted how far have they been shipped all of this sort of stuff I was trying to think about and actually it was just so much easier in the end just to give up fish because it although it was quite a major part of my diet I knew that I knew enough about nutrition to have a well-rounded diet without having fish in it and then I sort of was kind of I mean I'm not very into dairy anyway it was eggs more that were um the difficult part for me to give up but I thought you know what Mm. why don't I just cut down on the other animal products parts of my life um and see where that leaves me and I I had tried to go vegan very suddenly age 15 um and basically ended up malnourished um really really struggling with things and you know I didn't have any periods for a long time so I was very much not a healthy person at that time and I think it's because I was I was at school I was having all my meals at school and they didn't have vegan options so I was essentially just eating the vegetarian options without the main parts of it so I was, I was kind of just having salad right. and bread basically um and so that obviously didn't work out for me so this time armed with so much more nutritional knowledge I was able to go vegan or rather plant-based um whilst knowing that I could actually stay healthy and continue my training. And I wasn't super rigid about it initially because I knew that I wanted it to be a long-term thing. And I knew that if I tried to force myself into something, that actually probably there'd be a bit of a backlash within my body or mentally um, that meant that I couldn't do it. So I kind of did it very slowly. And then my partner and I both um, went vegan at the same time. And um, we are both to this day as well. So it worked out really well for us. Um, and the, mm. the that was all for sustainability reasons. Um, and the health aspects and animal welfare aspects, um, I started to learn a lot more about when I was already plant-based. Um, and I mean, they're all great. It, it, worst case scenario, mm. it's definitely not negatively impacted my training. I mean, I've got my fastest, all of my fastest times since going vegan. Um, and while I probably can't attribute it entirely to the diet, it's certainly not hindered me, which is definitely a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's great for people to hear the nuances, as you just described, of saying people assume sometimes a certain type of diet is labelled as healthy or unhealthy. But mm. I think, as you just rightly said, there's there's lots of different ways to consume lots of different diets and it doesn't define them as healthy or unhealthy. So perfect example there. If you're a plant based or vegan diet, but you're not including the things you need, you can become malnourished, you can become mm. deficient. But that doesn't mean that binary, oh, being vegans unhealthy or because I do think mm-hmm. there's kind of this polarisation that we like 
like to do things being very black and white. And I heard someone saying that recently, you know, oh, all those people that, that went vegan 10 years ago as part of a kind of fad trend. Now they're all unhealthy. And it's just it's this binary thing that we yeah. like to do. And I think, you know, if we understand the nuances of nutrition and also education about our own bodies and what works for us, then of course it does take effort. It requires, it's like anything, it requires effort to go, am I getting enough of this? Do I need to take a supplement? Do I need to maybe be a bit more creative and inventive because let's be honest if you've got a busy life and your job and kids and you know you you might we fall into the routines don't we of eating the same foods and buying the same things and you have to personally I think I still challenge myself to look and go are you eating the same the same vegetables the same fruits the same meals like actually we need to mix it up and get variety and I think if I'm honest when I was plant-based I probably did that even more than I do now so my my diet was probably more diverse and maybe Mm. even more healthy than it is now because I can be a bit lazier now Mm, yeah of course that's exactly it like there was one thing that actually going plant-based forced me to do and that was to cook more different types of meals and to learn how to cook new meals and I love cooking so it was it was great for me to learn about new dishes and what what lends itself to a vegan diet because of course (laughs) the Brits were not the people to invent the vegan diet you know (laughs) plant-based eating has been around for a really long time within loads of different cultures and and cooking meals coming from those cultures is a great way of um having having dishes that actually work really well as plant-based in fact they would have originally been plant-based anyway um so you know things like stir fry and curries are both my go-to meals whereas previously I might have just been having you know salmon and rice so now I've got loads of different types of veg I know how to cook loads of different types of meals and um there's kind of a joy in it as well but you know not everyone really loves cooking so then sometimes like things like frozen meals and meal kits can really come in handy to learn how to cook different foods yeah and you also mentioned that it hasn't hindered your performance which we know and we've seen so I guess you know one of the things about endurance training is that you need a lot of calories as you said you know you're going to be out and for anyone listening who maybe they're going to be increasing their volume of training over the next few weeks or months or you know going into maybe even next year into going into spring and thinking about marathon training etc when the volume of of training increases I don't know if this is just a female thing. I don't want to discount men from this, but I find personally and in my 10 years of working in the wellness industry that women kind of, they'd say, oh, the volume of training is going up, but they don't want to match the calories. They don't want to increase the Mm. calories because we've been, I guess, like ingrained for so long to kind of like calories in, calories out. Oh, wow. If you just did a 10 mile run and burnt all those calories, then, you know, you don't want to kind of, you know what I mean? This idea, instead of thinking of food as fuel and refueling, it's kind of just rewarded that you burnt a lot of calories. And again, I think if people learn that to, in order to perform at their best, as well as, you know, this idea of rest and recovery, that actually food and fueling and refueling is just as important, you know, what you consume after and before. So how do you, how did you approach that with, with your plant-based diet and with, with training for such a big event? How did you approach that? Well, now I very much trust my body and my hunger signals, um, which I definitely haven't always done. Um, <laughs> every time I start training for a new event, uh, be it, you know, a 5k, 10k or an ultramarathon, it takes about two weeks for my appetite to catch up. And after two weeks, I am ravenous. I'm absolutely ravenous, like constantly. And I eat so much food, um, 
to the point that when I'm at events and obviously eating uh, freeze-dried meals around other people, um, I'm at least matching what the men are eating, probably having a little bit more. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think women judge themselves for having more food. Obviously men sometimes as well, but primarily women um, think, oh, well, I only burnt X amount of calories, so really I should only be having X amount of calories more. I think you really need to trust your body and don't judge yourself. Um, I think it's impossible to increase your volume of training consistently week on week if you have a strange relationship with food and if you're trying to control every morsel that enters your mouth. I think Mm. you've really got to think about the increase in energy consumption over the whole day, not just for your run. Um, And actually, if you're going to take recovery seriously, if you're taking your training seriously, you have to take recovery seriously. And if you want to take recovery seriously, you have to eat as soon as you're back from your runs. You probably, definitely, I would say, should be eating before your runs. So you shouldn't be, at least for women, doing fasted runs because I think it's something to do with our cortisol levels. They're they're a bit higher and it can put so much stress on the body. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm not an expert. So my my kind of advice would be definitely to seek advice from an expert if you're not sure if you're doing it right. And I think if you're first training for your first long event, like a marathon, um, it's really good to get some proper advice because, you know, you mentioned at the beginning when we were, when I was training for Tokyo marathon, I was a hundred percent not eating enough, but I couldn't, I just, I couldn't physically fit in the amount of food that I needed um, because I wasn't used to it. So when I was training, you know, I dropped four kilos or something over the two months that I was training for, for that marathon. And it it just wasn't healthy Mm. for me. So when I actually arrived on the start line, I was completely energy depleted at the start so by the end yeah. I was completely destroyed so th- people like Renee McGregor on social media she's a great person to follow um, if you're looking for loads of information but she also has a clinic as well um, so if you think that you're struggling with things or would like some impartial advice she's a great person to go to for that yeah absolutely and it's really important that we say that you know a caveat in this conversation that it's your personal experience and, and mine but yeah we're not you know suggesting nutrition advice and actually Renee was a previous guest on the Power Hour so maybe we can link to her episode <laughs> in the show notes as well so let's talk about the race the big race the one that you're still recovering from hopefully to resting and you know you've earned it hopefully you're you've got your feet up and you're recovering now because the race was less than two weeks ago 80 people took on the challenge of this three-day 125k in the Highlands and you were the first female finisher. So first of all, congratulations, because I think often the first thing we do is move on to the next thing, you know, reflect, mm-hmm. what we let you, questions, questions, questions. But the first thing I want to say is well done, Flora. Thank congratulations you. <laughs> you, for doing that distance and for being the first female finisher. Hello, this is incredible. Oh. Thank you so much. So tell us all about it. Tell us about so it's three days. Talk us through day one, day two, day three, and how you how did it go? Oh my goodness. It was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. Um it's one of those things that's sort of type two fun, you know? Type one fun is fun that's fun at the time and fun in hindsight. <laughs> type two fun is sort of like hellish at the time. And in hindsight, you're like, oh my God, it was amazing. And then type three fun is hellish at the time and hellish in hindsight. You're like, probably I shouldn't have done that. So this was very much type two fun. Um, At the time, it was so tough, like undeniably the toughest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, And I I showed up on the start line, though, with very few expectations, um, knowing full well that I'd never done anything like the distance. You know, day one alone, 
50 kilometers matched my longest run up to that point. So I was then having to do two more days after that in really, really difficult conditions. Um, and I actually, I vlogged the whole thing. So I have three different um, videos that have gone out from day one, day two, day three. It's a little plug in there because if you want to see the types of conditions that we were dealing with, I think that's a good place to start because mm. I was expecting when I showed up for there to be paths. I mean, we were told, you know, farm track, gravel path, this sort of trail stuff. Um, no, Adrian, no, there was not a single path after the first 25 kilometers. So we were like, So what is it? It's just fields? It's just, I wouldn't even call it fields. It's bog. It's kind of like peat, uh, peat bog and um, lots of rivers and streams. And, and it had also been raining for about a month up to the point that we started the race. Um, so there was a huge amount of water on the ground. So every step that you think you should be running, you're sinking into the ground and then having to pull your feet out. And at the end of day one, everyone had issues with their hip flexors and with the tops of their mm. feet from basically pulling their feet out of... Um, you know, knee deep mud. So it was um, a lot more difficult than I ever could have expected, which was also, I expected it to be pretty difficult. Um, so when I showed up, I just thought, I really want to get to the end of day one because day one in and of itself is still an ultramarathon. It's still the furthest I've ever run. It's going to be a good achievement to show up, give it my best shot and, and kind of tick that off the list. Um, and I think that was really key to keeping a positive mindset was not setting too high expectations because to be honest, I kind of wanted to run the whole thing and I really couldn't. It was 50 kilometers and it took me seven and a half hours. So, you know, that gives you a bit of indication of how tough it was to run. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of um, hiking, a lot of hiking because it was very hilly as well. Was there any point where, you know, when you're describing it, as we've said, you know, discomfort and comfort is better and you know it's boggy and it's hilly and it's like it doesn't sound fun at all like <laughs> at all it doesn't sound appealing you are not selling this to me so I feel like <laughs> was there any a point of it where you kind of just went Flora why and why are you doing this like why are you actually doing this uh, or did you just were you just focused oh well a bit of both I mean like every second of every moment I was thinking why on earth <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, there's, there's always the option to stop. And that's the funny thing. Like I did not once think, oh, well, you know what, let's just sit at the side here and cry because, um, that's the best option here because actually, um, I'd chosen to be there. I'd taken a 12 hour train journey to get there and I desperately wanted to do it. So there was no point that I thought, actually, let's just not do it. It didn't even cross my mind. But of course, constantly I'm thinking, what the hell, Flora? What have you signed yourself up for? Like, this is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, you are, you're, you're human. Okay, so day two. <laughs> um, day two was supposed to be easier than day one. It was about a marathon in distance um, and um, was a lot hillier, but we really lucked out with the weather. It was gorgeous sunshine, which for the Highlands is kind of, unheard of at this time of year you sort of get all seasons in one day but we really lucked out so we set off at eight o'clock um and although it was you know eight kilometers shorter than day one it took me eight hours to do so it took me an extra half an hour to do basically um and that's because there was even less runnable terrain the first two hours was all uphill and um that was where the majority of the people in the race um uh, DNF'd they quit um because it was just 
unrelenting. And I think mentally, although physically, kind of everyone can do that. If you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, just keep shuffling up the hill, you'll eventually get to the top and then it's downhill. Mentally, that's really difficult because you expect to be able to run large segments of it. And of course, when that when when it's that tough, you can't run anything. So it takes even longer. So every mile that gets ticked off is so painfully slow. Um, and we didn't even have paths again. Like there was just not a single path. So I was just sort of looking up ahead and hoping to see a person so that I could kind of go from where I was to where they were, because really I had no idea where I was going. Um, you know, I am very much an amateur at these sorts of things. So I was um, just trying to like ride off what other people were doing and copy what they were doing and hope that I eventually got to the end. Um, and, but once we peaked uh, after that initial hill, it was significantly better. So I think mentally that was a really tough challenge, but also a good one to say, you know what, actually halfway up that, I really felt quite ill. I, I really did not feel very good at all. I was obviously physically exhausted, but also I'd gone over on my ankle on day one, about 16 kilometers in. And by that point, I'd already run, you know, about 40 or walked about 40 kilometers on a swollen ankle. So it was not feeling particularly good at this point. But I kept going, kept putting one foot in front of the other, not quickly at all. Um, and eventually I got to the top. And from that point, physically and mentally, it was much, much, much easier. I could kind of just like plod on. Um, and that was a good uh, lesson, I think, for me to learn. Mm. <laughs> eventually you get to the top. Mm. And actually, um, very quickly, I, I had done a race um, during UTMB week in um, August. I did MCC, which is like the kiddies race. It's 40 kilometers, um, which is the shortest race that they do. That's in Chamonix, exactly. Um, and the first three hours of that, the first 17 kilometers is steep uphill. Basically, it's one mountain. So you just go uphill and then you go downhill um, from Switzerland into France. And it's really, really tough because it's three hours of constant climbing. So I think that really prepped me very well for the second day, which was essentially the same race, but with uh, just two hours of climbing at the beginning. So, yeah. <laughs> and with and, and just just done 50K the day before as well. Oh, yeah. Also, also that. So then you're feeling confident, as you said, you've kind of got to the top and gone, OK, if I can do that one foot in front of the other, slowly, 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 eventually, eventually you will get there. And then it's day three. So you said you mentioned people are DNF. So 80 people started. How many people were left at day three? Do you know? Um, I think a few people had started day two that weren't actually in the race because they'd had DNF the day before. Um, so I think it was about 70 um, probably maybe slightly okay. fewer who started day three um and day three was the shortest day so a lot of people ran or walked it um who were no longer in the race racing but were still you know completing mm -hmm. the days which i think kudos to you because actually that's i think a lot tougher when you know that you're you don't have to do it and you're there doing it anyway um so day three was 25 kilometers and by this point my foot was destroyed i kept waking up in the middle of the night and i couldn't move it because it was really quite swollen um so I couldn't move it and I was like I don't think it's broken because it's actually not crazy painful but I just can't really use it as a foot it's more like a kind of lump on the end of my leg um <laughs> but <laughs> having having sort of experienced you know feeling similarly bad at the end of like a 50k I thought well you know what it's only 25k to the end I know the route so it's back from the second camp to back to the first camp so we had done that part of the route before I know the route I know that I can do it because I've done it in the other direction um, at the end of a 50k on day one so I set off I actually um, the first 10 kilometers of it, it's a very narrow track um, undulating quite hilly very boggy but very narrow so there's not many opportunities for passing so I had put myself quite near the front um 
possibly, it's possibly kind of like, maybe I shouldn't have. Um, but I did because I knew that if I could get the first 10K done, near the front then not many people would be able to pass me and i had found out the day before as well that i had come in um first woman the day before and second woman the day before that which put me in a really good place for doing quite well on this third day um and then anyway as soon as we set off everyone ran past me (laughs) i literally couldn't run so i was like hobbling along um trying to trying to keep my position near the front and um yeah it was a real uh, ego check for me because I just was passed very 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 quickly by, by almost everyone in the entire field um but slowly I warmed up into it and um passed a couple of people on the on the steep downhills and and the steep downhills are the joy of my life I absolutely love <laughs> throwing myself down a mountain at a million miles an hour I have zero regard for my personal safety or my knees um so I just sort of like throw myself down the mountains and um that's what I was doing and it was slow it was really slow for 25 kilometers but um eventually I made it to the end um and I don't know it was I, I cried when I finished um not because of pain or anything like that but just because I'd set I set I'd set out to be able to complete day one really um and to kind of complete the mar- ultra if I could um I hadn't really expected to be able to do it so to be able to finish day three feeling like I'd given it my all was really the best feeling in the world yeah I bet I bet it was I mean it's such an incredible thing to to even take on I think that's the reality you don't just turn up one day at the start line you know all of the preparation the training the mental showing up and then getting there and as you said not having any expectation of ever having done that distance before I can't imagine you know I've never done a distance like that I can't imagine actually feeling you know getting to the end and being like yes (laughs) hell yes like I actually did that you know I did it and I don't know if you are familiar with James Lawrence the Iron Cowboy do you know who that is no I've never heard of him Oh my gosh. So James Lawrence, Iron Cowboy, he is someone, he's a world record holder for completing 50 Ironman races in 50 consecutive days, which is insane. And and, and he then went on to do, I think it's 101, literally recently, he's just finished it, 101 complete Ironman races in 101 consecutive days. Now, That's disgusting. In, it's insane. <laughs> like, it's insane for anyone who doesn't, you know, the Ironman distance, I don't know, he's that, I'm going to mess up now I don't exactly what the swim is but it's basically a really long swim a really long cycle and a marathon every single day Mm -hmm. now he talked about you know obviously after doing the 50 and 50 this challenge of 100 and 100 and he talked a lot about the kind of why you know like I was saying to you earlier what you know why are you doing this like it's it's not fun it's cold it's hard why are you doing it and obviously you know I talk a lot about my motto which is you can do hard things and this idea that doing hard things is important and he always talks about with this new challenge people said to him why why did you need to do that you'd already done the 50 and 50 like it's insane no one else can do it and he basically said yeah it's important for him for himself no one else not to prove it to anyone or to get another Mm. world record or to whatever he said I have to prove to myself that I can do hard things and he said doing hard things in the world that we live in now it's so easy to go through your whole life and never do anything hard and I'm not talking about you know we all face challenges in our lives of course we do you know we all have to do things that we don't want to do or we all have bad days we all have challenges to face but he's talking about really you know he's comparing it to I don't know, a time when you had to go to war like there was no choice you had to and it's this idea that we now 
we never have to do anything hard. And ultimately it is a choice. He's like, I choose to do hard things. So I wonder, you know, hearing that, I wonder, is there a part of you who, does that resonate with you as someone who's done something like that to go actually, why is it important to you, Flora, to do such hard things? Goodness me. Well, I think he probably put it better than I ever could. Um, But it's very much along the same lines of, I think it's really easy to just live your life um, in comfort. And although that's, you know, all well and good, very nice. It's not, it's not very rewarding. And mm. whether your hard thing is running further than the end of your road or running your first ever marathon or running however many disgusting Ironmans in a row, um, it's all the <laughs> same sense of, you setting out to do something that you didn't know that you could achieve and then being able to achieve that thing. And I think it's very transferable to the rest of your life. And I think that's why so many people do these things. You know, you set out to do a training program that looks, if you look at week four or week six or week 10, it looks impossible. You think I can't do that, but you build it up week on week, day on day. And you get to that point, you think, oh, well, actually, you know, four weeks ago, 10 weeks ago, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do this thing. And yet here I am completing it or having completed it like that's pretty cool maybe I can do that in the rest of my life as well and I think that's a major factor for me is is kind of confidence to do the things that you didn't think that you could do and then also I think not everyone can not everyone has the opportunity to go out and do these sorts of crazy things and a lot of people would really love to do it and I am lucky enough to have built my life around getting the opportunities to do these sorts of things. And I think it would be a real waste for me not to at least give it a go. So Mm. yeah, here I am giving it a go. Yeah. Great. I love, I love that. And I love what you said about it being rewarding because actually, yeah, uh, doing things that are rewarding and, and this idea that whatever it is. So yeah, we've talked obviously a lot about running, but someone was asking me yesterday about speaking and, you know, public speaking and saying, you know, they want to, for example, if they get invited to be a guest on a podcast, they want to do it, but they are so fearful of speaking and in public speaking, they're just like, I don't know how to start and build that confidence. And as you said, then around what you think is possible at the start, you know, maybe it's just speak, speak in front of four people in your team at Mm. work and actually take, you know, do a little prep and do a little presentation and do it in front of four people. Because then when you do that, more becomes possible maybe you can do that in front of 10 people maybe you could do an online thing in front of 30 people because you don't see them you know building it up to the point where okay you don't have to think about the thousands of people maybe that are going to watch or listen or whatever and it's exactly the same right as you said it's transferable doing hard things whether physically whether mentally that reward is going to pay off exactly exactly that Right, let's talk about the power hour. 
because I know, as I said, I know you. So I know that you are, you know, you, the concept of power hour, I think you are a fan of, and I think you have. So I'd love to know what your power hour is like, what the first hour of your day is like, and actually if it's changed over the last few years. Well, yes. So a hundred percent with lockdown, everything has changed for me. You know, I've, I've moved twice since, um, COVID started. I've moved to um, my own house, which is great, um, from a flat in London to a house in Bristol. And everything has sort of changed within my life. I've got a dog now. Um, it's yeah. really great. Things have changed. You're an adult. Though, and <laughs> I am. I'm a real grown up. It's terrifying. Um, but it does mean that my power hour has gone from being literally just me doing what I want in the mornings to me and then my partner having to take the dog for a walk and like do all of the, you know, things, having people dependables um, mm. that I, I've got to look after. So um, previously I would get up at 6.30 or 7, um, often do a little bit of breathing. I used to do a lot more breath work than I do now. Um, and then I would go to the gym, um, do a class or a Peloton workout or go for a run, um, come back and then I would start my day. Nowadays, um, since COVID, I have taken sleep a lot more seriously. Um, mm. I used to suffer from insomnia. So now I um, am very careful to make sure that I get enough sleep and that I enjoy it because I am generally a much better person um, when I have had enough sleep and I, I really take it very seriously. So now I wake up naturally um, at around 7.30 um, to 8 o'clock, kind of more around 7, 7.30 at the moment. Um, and then I take the dog out um, and she gets a nice long walk. Um, I do love this time of year or a little bit earlier than this time of year for sort of the crisp mornings. And, um, you know, it's it's a lot more comfortable for the dog as well than the kind of boiling hot sweltering mornings of, of midsummer. And um, we tend to take it really easy. And then we come back, we have a decaf uh, mocha. I don't drink very much caffeine at all anymore because I like to be able to feel when I feel tired. Um, and then, yeah, we, then we get on, on with our day. So the first part of the morning, like with you, is my sort of power hour. Um, although if I don't have that, then I try to fit it in wherever I can, because I know hmm. that I can switch on my motivation and, and um, stop procrastinating if I have to at any point during the day, which is a very nice skill to be able to have. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And again, another thing that I think comes with time, because that's, a, again, a question I get asked so much is like, well, Adrian, if I can't have a power hour in the morning, you know, is there any point doing it later on? Or, you know, can yeah. you have a power hour later? And of course, I'm always going to be an advocate for mornings because... I genuinely, genuinely see, you know, how it's changed my life and others, mm. because I just think the way the world, the way the world works, the time that people wake up, the time that people have to get their kids to school or be online or at work or whatever, that is not going to change for you. And I think yeah. that's the thing that I often say is like, it's not as much as you might have a different body clock, you might be a night owl, blah, blah, blah. The world and the systems, unfortunately, that kind of allow us all to function and communicate are not going to change for you. So for me, having the morning, it's it's just uninterrupted. It's magic. It's solitude. But that said, if you can't have that time in the morning or, or, or as you mentioned, if you need to tap into something at another time in the day, then, of course, you know, do your power hour whenever. Just make sure that you actually have some ring fence time dedicated mm -hmm. to yourself. A hundred percent. And and knowing the habits that you have to have to be able to get that work done or, or whatever you need to get done um, is really helpful. So like things like leaving your phone in a different room, um, 
putting on particular music for me that's really helpful if I have you know Chopin or Elgar's cello concerto whatever um then my brain automatically goes into work mode and I think that's just due to me having listened to that music when I've been writing or doing whatever work over the years um so now if I put that on I have immediate work mode in my mind and having those sorts of habits I think are really invaluable to being able to immediately switch into um, your power hour or or work mode or whatever you want to call it um, really quickly. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Having a cue, a prompt, something that you're like, okay, when I see that or when I hear that, I recognize it's mm-hmm. time to go. I really like that. That's yeah. really great. Awesome. Well, Flora, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Again, congratulations on on completing the race. I mean, what an incredible achievement. You know what? I hate to do this. I hate to ask, but I would like to know what's next are you now after that are you are you excited about something else has it fueled you to kind of go okay if I could do that what else can I do or are you going to put your feet up for the rest of the year oh um good question I had had several races planned um but my foot has not yet recovered so I've I've taken a bit of a back step um, and I am going to rest for a little bit. Um, but that does not mean that I do not have some incredible races in the diary for next year. So I have two ultramarathons, um, one in May and one in June um, next year. <clears throat> that will be incredible and that will be probably significantly harder than the one that I've just done um so as soon as my foot is better I'll be back to training I have a fun run um booked for December that I do with my whole extended family pretty much um that that's going to be absolutely incredible because <laughs> it is very much a fun affair where we then all go to the pub afterwards and, and and eat all of the calories and have all of the fun so that will be good um but this was my this ultramarathon was my a race of the year so it's something that I've been hmm. building up to for months and months now um and so now I'm going to actually sit back and say, uh, that was a job well done. And now I can have some rest and focus on other things before getting back to training and doing it all again next year. Great. I mean, absolutely. I'm so glad to hear you say that you're going to rest because that's why I said I hate to ask because often it's like, <laughs> what's next? What's next? What's next? Like, hang on a minute. I just ran 125k. Are you mad? <laughs> so I'm really pleased to hear it. And also I'm not, I'm kind of thinking when you say the family fun and I'm thinking you just said that you're all mega competitive so I'm sure that day is going to be uh, an interesting one for the family fun run well thank you so much Flora and last but not least can you tell us where tell the listeners where they can find you online where they can watch the vlog of the race and where they can reach out and connect with you um you can find everything on instagram which is at food fitness flora um all of the links to my blog and my youtube um are in there in in the bio my youtube's also flora beverly um and then and you can find um the race vlog on there and all of my other race vlogs as well um i try to i try to vlog every race i do because it's sometimes quite fun looking back over it it is fun looking back over it, but I'm not going to lie. That is extra work. That is extra additional <laughs> brain space, energy requirement, you know, like having to film and go, oh my gosh, I'm a mile, whatever. And now I've got to film and, and, and do a vlog is also incredible. It's incredibly admirable that you do that because it is real hard work. So def- definitely check out the video, get inspired and let us know if it's inspired you to sign up for a race. Thank you. This this has been really good. Thank you so much, Adrienne. No, thanks, Flora, and have an awesome week. As always, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to the Power Hour podcast. See ya.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 